The views and opinions expressed by the guests on this podcast are that of their own. In no way, shape, or form do they reflect the official policy or position of the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. You've descended into the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack, a commercial diving podcast by working divers for divers. Episode number 11, Diving into Space with Mitch Acampora. Mitch comes on the show and talks about his time working with the NBL, the Neutral Buoyancy Laboratory. He also speaks about how he got himself through school, eventually earning a Master's of Science degree. So join us as we speak with Mitch. This interview is a follow-up to his Underwater Magazine article that he had published in February. So if you have a chance, please go to ADCI and uh, check out the Underwater Magazine article with uh, Mitch Acampora entitled A Space Odyssey. We'd also like to thank Pressure Junkies for sponsoring this episode. For some badass suits for the working diver, go to PressureJunkies.com. That's PressureJunkies with a Z.com. And as usual, please like, follow, and share our social media pages on Instagram at Bottom Dwellers DS, on our Facebook page, Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack, and also you can follow me at LB Diver on both. Our website is thebottomdwellers.com, and don't forget about our uh, Diver's Grab Bag, our uh, Diver Hotline. Leave us a message there or send us an email. We'd love to hear your stories, your comments, and uh, we might even share it on the air. So turn up those comms, stand by, we're going to make it hot. All right, well, another episode of the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. We got a special guest for you today. We got uh, Mitch Acampora, and uh, is, is, is that how you say that, Mitch? Yeah, close enough, Acampora. I respond to just about any sort of variant of that. Yeah, you're a true diver right there. We respond to pretty much anything <laughs> they yell at us, right? Exactly. Awesome. So uh, let's see, you, you wrote an article for Underwater Magazine. You kind of chronicled a little bit about your, uh, your adventure starting, starting with uh, diving. And uh, you ended up in a, not, I wouldn't say a different spot, but you ended up in a, you know, probably some place where you didn't you know, imagine yourself. Can you uh, kind of give us a little bit of a background on yourself there? Yeah. So first of all, thanks for having me on. Armando, appreciate it. I've seen some of the guys you've had on in the past. And um, yeah, lucky, lucky to be on. Don't feel like I belong, but uh, well, but it's a pleasure nonetheless. Um, so yeah, I was able to add the. I was fortunate enough to be able to get the green light from the the folks at Underwater, which uh, they were a pleasure to work with, and submit an article. Basically, it was kind of a more or less a bio about the route I took um, from a commercial diving background on to on into aerospace engineering and defense and the key um the key kind of door there was through the nbl or the neutral buoyancy lab and that's kind of uh that's kind of what the article revolved around um and uh for those listening that don't know your taxpayer dollars are going to uh fund this but there's a uh, 40 foot deep 102 feet wide by 202 feet long uh training tank in houston texas at uh, Johnson Space Center, uh, 6.2 million gallons of fresh water. And uh, in that tank is where astronauts train for extravehicular activity, um, which is just a fancy way of saying spacewalks. But anything um, done outside of the space station 
which is orbiting us right now, um, they train for those tasks uh, there. So it's a that's a lot of diving. Um, they, you know, it, it was, and I got to be kind of a part of that support team. But it's a huge, huge support network there, um, topside, underwater, and then of course, you know, you're dealing with a lot of pressure stuff. Um, the the subjects themselves, the astronauts themselves, are wearing downgraded uh, or class three, class three W EMUs. Uh, EMU is extravehicular mobility unit, and essentially, it is the spacesuit um, that's used today. Uh, it's got a few modifications made uh, for use in the pool for the underwater application, um, but uh, but they're in that suit the entire day, um, about six hours, and so yeah, I was able to to talk. Uh, a little bit about that and hope to do more so on the show, but, uh, but it's interesting, Armando, I don't know if you know about it, um, prior to reading the article or heard about it, but it's surprising the amount of people don't even know this place exists. Yeah. So, um, I, I, I did know about it and, uh, I know ever so often they would, I don't know if it was, I know it's related to them, but they would throw something out on indeed for like, you know, looking, looking for somebody to, to sign up and everything. And I would always submit my application in there and, uh, yeah. That was always one of those dream jobs, you know, that I said, man, it'd be so cool if I got this, you know, but uh, it, it never really came to fruition, you know, but it's just like I said, it's one of those kind of dream jobs and stuff. Is that how you felt when you got the call? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, you know, I, it was an interesting way that I heard about it because I actually heard about it through a retired astronaut. Other, you know, before then I hadn't heard anything about it. Um, and I, this, uh, this person's path uh, and my own crossed. And uh, I just ended up hearing about it from him. And then um, after I had a stint in the commercial diving industry, I kind of got, um, got an in, got a call. And, and yeah, I was kind of starstruck at first, right? Because here's, you know, this huge, huge pool. And, you know, even though there's, there's really not a whole lot of surface supply going on, um, except for, you know, the subjects, it's, a, it's just an, a really miraculous place. You know, the amount of, uh, the complexity of the day-to-day operations would astound any commercial diver, really anybody off the street. Um, so yeah, it was, it was an amazing opportunity to just get the initial phone call. Um, you know, and you kind of got to, you know, be behind the curtain for the first time and and see what all goes on. There's just so much going on. Um, yeah, it was a, it was a really cool feeling. That's so cool, man. Um, I, I really loved how, how you uh, included a lot of your uh, early beginnings in your article there. Um, for, for those that, uh, that don't know, there's an article in Underwater Magazine called A Space Odyssey, and uh, it's written by Mitch. And uh, he does a really good job at, uh, at kind of describing everything that he had gone through. But I really liked uh, your early beginnings of, as a kid because it reminded me of myself. You, know, you develop your love for the ocean when you're young, and it looks like you definitely had a good foundation on, uh, on, on you know, being in the water. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a great, great quote out of one of these books that's basically, you know, uh, you know, diver, a true diver can't pass up a mud puddle without sticking his face in and seeing what's going on. And so I kind of had that, you know, that bug a bit early on. Um, and a lot of, you know, us uh, born and raised Californians, we grew up on the beaches here, we get spoiled, we get a stereotype, this comes with the territory. Um, but, you know, surfing and all that, uh, that kind of starts blending these two worlds together and you get comfortable, 
you learn a lot of lessons as far as the ocean and conditions. And, um, and eventually, you know, someone stops the tank on your back or shoots you down some, some air or some gas and, uh, you, you discover a whole different, different world beneath the surface there. So, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, it's definitely, you know, all, all of us divers, we definitely have it in us as far as that, uh, that kind of, um, adventurous, um, you know, explorer, you know, I don't think that ever dies. I think that's in us. Even if someone's just telling us what to do, uh, it's still part of part of the uh, part of the game, a part of the life. So it was a uh, it was interesting to get into, you know, to kind of segue into um, commercial service applied diving um, the way that I did because I don't know how you went about it or how the listeners went going about it. Everybody's got a, kind of a different story. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure some guys out there went the Chico or the uh, yeah, this the uh, <laughs> had a very interesting story, but um, you know, I kind of was able to dip my toe in, so to speak, with scuba, and then went to Santa Barbara City College. Uh, they got an outstanding, um, on personal opinion, outstanding program there for marine diving tech, and uh, you know, got a got a feel for what the life is all about. Uh, went to the typical education, and really, really leveraged the experience of the instructor staff there. To kind of, you know, see how I can, you know, not only excel at what it is they're teaching me, but as with anything in life, see how I can use it to fuel the fire and catapult me into the next thing. Awesome. Uh, who was the instructor there at Santa Barbara again? So there's there's a few there. Um, recently, I think there's been some change, but particularly Jeff Tilst, uh, he was the program director at the time. Uh, Dan Vasey, another excellent instructor. And Don Barthelmus, um, very, very knowledgeable. All of them, uh, extremely personable, experienced individuals uh, that really, really stood up the program. And it was, it was great to be able to have the one-on-one time that uh, that institution allowed you, I think, maybe more than others, uh, to kind of pick these guys' brains outside of the classroom uh, for those that were and, interested. And that's something that we've talked on this show before, is that uh, your, your foundation, your dive foundation, you know, a lot of it you do get on the job, but if you can get that foundation before getting on the job, then you're going to have a leg up on everybody else. Um, now, of course, your foundation started a little bit early with a, you were a previous scuba diver before, so you were already comfortable in the water. So that kind of gave you a leg up. Yeah. Um, I know the first time that I, you know, had some air, on, you know, in me and, uh, it wasn't scuba, but it was snuba. It was, it was, it was kind of funny. It was a family trip to Maui and uh, my dad had gotten hit by a truck. Oh. So that afforded us the uh, opportunity to use his settlement. To nice. get out there, you know, so this kid from North Long Beach is chilling in Hawaii on a second air down a hose, <laughs> you know, and the minute that we dropped down was amazing. I, I mean, you're talking, I saw these sea turtles and fish and everything. And then after that, it's like, I'd been kind of itching and aching to try to uh, try to find a way to get back in the water. You know, so, uh, again, you find your, your calling, you know, and, uh, why you want to do it. And it's a lot of it's based on curiosity too, you know, curiosity and adventure. And can you tell us a little bit about your, uh, your, in the article, you mentioned that you, uh, knew, uh, astronaut, yes. right. While you were diving, I, I kind of want to hear that story. A little yeah. Bit. yeah. So it's, uh, it's an interesting one. Um, I'm not going to disclose the person's name, but, uh, but the individual and I actually ended up crossing paths at, uh, 
at a summer camp, believe it or not. Um, as a, as a kid, I was all into the boy scouting thing and, you know, kind of, uh, anything outdoors that I could get my hands on that just was an excellent way for me to go about getting involved in that. So I kind of got into that, you know, and then at the same time, I'm, you know, playing water polo and swimming and surfing and all this stuff, just kind of spending a lot of time, um, outside doing sports and probably less time than I ought to have, you know, spending time with friends and partying, but, um, who knows? Uh, yeah, but yeah, it was an interesting experience to be able to you know, go to a place that I'd gone to as a kid and now I'm going back teaching diving. Uh, and it was just kind of an interesting happenstance. Like ended up, um, hearing through the grapevine that this particular instructor out there was, uh, was a former, or this particular, uh, individual out there was a former astronaut. And so, um, immediately, you know, like you or I'm sure many of the listeners here would be, you know, very interested in, um, kind of picking their brain and hearing their story, you know, all those interesting little facts, you know, it's, it's just, it's very rare to cross paths. Um, you know, it's more common, I think in Houston, Texas than it is anywhere else in the world, but, uh, uh definitely more so than, uh, in central California and certainly more than, you know, some Island off the coast of central California. So it was kind of a great opportunity. And I ended up uh, talking to him a little bit, um, getting to know him, uh, his, his kids were actually in a, uh, in a scuba class that I was doing. So they earned their certification through me and just kind of built their little relationship. Um, and he ended up telling me about this particular place in Houston, Texas, that the train, you know, and, and, uh, and divers have a, have a role there, which, you know, immediately got me thinking, Hey, I wonder if I can do that. So that's pretty cool because that, that, that kind of put that idea right in your head, you know, and yeah. uh, that's something that kind of allowed you to kind of uh, latently work towards that. Or, or, I mean, what was your goals coming out of dive school? Why did you go? To yeah. Dive so, I mean, uh, like with anything, I have this tenacity, uh, a lot of guys, but you know, once you get the idea in your head, you just, I got to do it. And patience has never been one of my strong suits. So it's always, uh, I heard about this. I looked it up. So that, you know, I want to do this. And in doing some research, it looked like there were a few different avenues to go ahead and get in. But one of the common factors across the board, and, and as anybody listening could, could testify to, you know, was a, a commercial diving education. Obviously, very, very valuable in a setting like that, where you have large-scale operations going on, pressurized life support systems, large uh, teams um, working towards a common mission. So this, uh, this was very attractive to me, and I was already a diver. So I was thinking, you know what? Diving's fun, but, uh, you know, as most people know that are scuba divers, you know, if, if uh, you want to get paid scuba diving, odds are there's an intern somewhere doing it for free already. It's hard to make a living, right? Unless you teach it. And so teaching it, it was a little bit interesting because I'd see guys coming through, um, kids rather, you know, coming through and their parents just kind of forcing them, you know, basically just forcing their head underwater, you know, quite literally sometimes because they just wanted this for their kids. And you got to, you got to feel kind of like a salesman. Didn't feel that good, kind of lost its luster a little bit. So I was like, you know what? Let's take this to the next level. Um, a lot of a lot of diving is just about being comfortable while you're uncomfortable. And so, you know, commercial diving was a great opportunity to go ahead and leverage that. I already had kind of felt that a little bit. And so, uh, you know, in doing my research about what the commercial diving entailed, as well as what it was, what was all required of a potential candidate for an NBL diver in Houston, um, you know, it kind of made sense. Like, okay, let's do this. And it was, you know, a stone's throw away. Uh, Santa Barbara City College, and it just so happened that it, it also had 
really good feedback. Um, you know, it's, Central Coast of California is a commercial diving hub. You know, it's got a lot of commercial diving history here. Uh, so it was uh, everything just kind of started to line up. And that's kind of what, what uh, got me into it uh, initially. So, um, you know, I was, I'm glad that everything transpired that way because it was a great experience. You know? and, uh, yeah, there's nothing quite like it. So you had that track already in your mind that this is why I'm going to dive school to try to give me a leg up to get into the, to the uh, program. And uh, which is kind of something that a lot of guys don't think about when they're going through dive school. They think that once they go through dive school, they're going to be out on a job on a rig or, or in a construction you know, site uh, trying to work on the docks. But there's other opportunities for commercial divers, right? Absolutely. And, and to be quite frank, you know, when I was going through, to me, it just was like, it just made sense. You know, even if uh, an NBL, the Nutri-Borency Lab didn't pan out, you know, I was comfortable underwater, comfortable being uncomfortable, you know, I was mechanically apt, you know, kind of, it kind of just made sense. Like, even if I don't get anything out of this, even if, even if, um, even if I don't get anything out of this with respect to the NBL, this is going to be great experience for me as a diver. And I know I'm going to be able to excel, um, you know, as, as everybody has, you know, who's listening to this and yourself. So, uh, it was a win-win kind of made sense. Now, specifically Santa Barbara college though, real quick. Um, they also offer, I mean, it's a legitimate college where you can take classes in like engineering and other different types of classes, right? It's not just a dive school. Yeah. So it's a city college. So as far as engineering, you may have, you know, some of your, uh, undergraduate stuff, your 200 and below level classes, um, to knock out there, but, uh, they do have a full fledged program. Uh, in fact, for marine diving technology, a lot of guys, they go through and they just get the certificate, um, gets into the field. Uh, I think you get ADCI as well as a, a, definitely a, a few other certificates with respect to diving and, and uh, diving first aid. At any rate, you know, you, you can even go further if you would wish. And um, you can actually get an associates in marine diving technology there, which is kind of cool. Uh, and you, I think you're one of the big uh, deltas for those guys that just want to get the cert and those guys that want to go on is, um, is EMT. But uh, Right. So there's opportunities to keep learning. Um, yes. And as a diver, we're, we're always learning, you know, that's uh, if we're not learning, then we're not, you know, staying safe and staying alive, obviously, you know, cause things change, uh, change pretty, pretty rapidly in our industry. Usually uh, like after accidents and stuff, obviously we, we learn from those. Hopefully I wanted to talk about your time at the uh, buoyancy laboratory. Yeah, so, absolutely. So, um, you know, finally getting that call, getting in the door, you know, uh, packed up my bags, um, two duffel bags, you know, leaving California, going to Houston, Texas, like talking to some guys, I was scrubbing boats in the Harbor while I was going to school, uh, at Santa Barbara and, uh, you know, talking to these guys like, man, this place is in, it's in Houston. Who wants to go to Houston? Well, I didn't know at the time, Houston's decent hope, and especially being in the Gulf, you know? Uh, so that's another thing that was in the back of my head is, Hey, if this doesn't pan out. Louisiana is much further to Texas than it is, uh, or sorry, much closer to Texas than it is to California. So, uh, popped on the plane, got over, uh, and, and day one, um, you know, here I was, you know, anybody can imagine, you know, diving for so long, you're, you're eager to get in. And it was, uh, it was an interesting, uh, you know, some folks had to essentially tell me, Hey, you know, we'll get your time. Uh, we're going to put you over here first. 
And over there was, was a, a part of the neutral buoyancy lab that's called the LMF or the light manufacturing facility. And it's interesting, um, the neutral buoyancy lab, you know, consists of the training tank, the 6.2 million gallon training tank. And then there's also this other building. And there's like a few other ancillary buildings as well located at the site. But, uh, but this particular, this particular building is a, the LMF is a fabrication building. So they actually build all of these one-to-one scale mock-ups of the International Space Station in-house and then wow. through cranes and different modes of transportation to get them over um, into a high bay that they can then take it with the overhead crane and bring it up into the pool. Uh, so yeah, it was kind of interesting, you know, getting some of that fabrication experience early on because I was able to learn, you know, from an engineering perspective later on, a little bit more about drawings and obviously... You know, um, being mechanically active is great to be able to work with my hands. No shortage of tools at NASA, you know, uh, no shortage of materials. So that was really nice, you know, mainly, you know, good quality tools, machinery, um, and then great people. I mean, it was just, again, it's such a big team over there. As in it is, you know, off- offshore, got a bunch of guys that are working towards this common vision. Same thing there. So it was interesting to get in there um, in this type of a way and then eventually get pulled over to be a full-fledged diver. That's and how it works awesome. is um, it's, uh, it's an interesting flow because divers, they wear multiple hats at the NBL. So, you know, you could be diving, supporting a test um, one day, you know, fil- charging tanks, um, you know, operating an environmental control system, you know, kind of all in the same day. And so strictly from a diving point of view, they kind of have three different echelons. So they have guys coming in initially and girls coming in initially. Um, and they're camera diving. So these, these training events are going on six hours a day, um, anywhere between four to seven times in two weeks, uh, sometimes more, sometimes less, but, uh, but it's, it's pretty extensive operations. And so the entire time in order for topside personnel to see what's going on and topside personnel includes, you know, the test director, the test conductors, the folks that are actually building up the procedures to have the subjects or the astronauts do in the water um, and a myriad of other folks, you know, they need to be able to see what's happening. And although the, there are cameras staged in the water in the pool, um, they, they dedicate a diver uh, to go ahead and hold an underwater camera and just kind of follow the subject around. So it's kind of a monkey on a chain type thing, uh, monkey on a, on a piece of, but, um, but you're giving the topside staff really good view of what's going on. And so that's kind of where they start. Yeah, that's a lot of eyes, dude. Yeah. That's like a lot of eyes. A lot of eyes. On you at all times. And you know that video feed. Like usually it's just, yeah. Normally it's just us in the water and we have a camera on and we don't want them to see something. We just kind of do one of these. Exactly. Yeah, it's not that simple anymore. It's not that simple anymore. Maybe one day it'll get there. Um, but, but now it's kind of like, you know, they know who's behind the camera and they know who's in front of the camera. And odds are, if you're not behind it, you're on so you got to be careful about, uh, you know, how you're behaving down there. And everybody doesn't have a problem. You know, the, everybody's super professional, professional there. And, and really, it's just giving topside folks kind of an idea of what's going on. No different than it is on, a, on top of a hat. So that's kind of where they start folks off at. And they kind of learn the ropes that way with the camera in their hand. And then the next level, um, so kind of once you graduate that first of three levels uh, diving, you go on to what's called the safety diving. And because, as you can imagine, you know, uh, astronauts, you know, uh, valuable government property, essentially, right? Underwater in pressurized suits, um, you know, they, uh, they want to make sure that, you know, safety is the number one priority at NASA. Uh, 
So they want to make sure that everything is going okay for those folks, constantly monitoring status and health, uh, their, their risk posture as far as, you know, hey, are they under a load? Um, I use load very, very loosely here. But are they under something that they couldn't get, uh, get out of quickly? Um, unlike on an actual EVA in space, these guys in the NBL, they actually do have an umbilical. So it conducts the same, you know, it's got similar components to what you find in an offshore umbilical or service supply umbilical of any kind. Uh, it's got a gas, gas flow line, gas return line, water flow, a partial return for water flow, which we can get to that later. I'll explain that. And then it's got a video feed and a comm feed. Um, so anyway, they want to make sure that that doesn't get tangled up. Uh, so essentially, there's two safety divers per subject that are dedicated to watching over these guys. So and then the, what are you watching for as a safety so you're really So you're really watching to make sure that uh, your subject stays safe. So kind of everything we were just talking about, you know, are they, uh, is their visor getting too close to the structure? You know, one of the interesting things when you go underwater is you have this fisheye effect. Um, and so you have a, you know, you have the actual uh, the portion of the visor that's seeing pressure, and then you have a protective visor over top. And so because of that fisheye effect, it's oftentimes the case where, you know, um, you're looking at a, at a quarter inch um, bolt and it looks like it's, you know, they look, maybe look like a half an inch or maybe it'll look like an eighth of inch. It's just really hard to gauge. Wow. And so sometimes these guys will get a little bit too close to structure and they'll, they'll you know, uh, get their, their visor a little bit too close for comfort. So we don't want that outside visor cracking because it makes the inside visor, the actual one that's seeing pressure, a little bit more susceptible to, to, to loading. So my son had a couple of questions. I, I told him you were coming on that you used to to help train the astronauts and stuff. And obviously we all love kid questions and it usually relates to a pee and poop. <laughs> okay, Mikey, fire away. What happens if they pee in their suit? Uh, that's something that's kind of overlooked because everybody's kind of seeing the beauty and stuff. But, uh, you know, true, I'm sure... Uh, takes after his dad and, you know, what about the nitty gritty stuff that actually we need to worry about. Um, but uh, absolutely, you know, that's something to consider. These guys are in, and girls are in for six hours at a time. Uh, divers, they switch off every two hours, but these guys are in for six hours at a time. So naturally you're going to need to go number one and hey, you may even need to go number two. Um, and so that's where this fine piece of uh, NASA ingenuity comes into play called the MAG, Mike Alpha Golf. That stands for um, Maximum Absorbency Garment. No joke. It is basically a big incontinence diaper and uh, you wear it and it's got a lot of absorption capability. And you know what? If nature calls, you're ready to answer. And uh, that's kind of how they equip these guys for that, um, both underwater in a training scenario and on the real deal when they're out you know, outside the space station. So that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. And, and you know, speaking from having been in the suit four times, it's interesting because once you pressurize that suit, the walls of it become rigid, very, very rigid, as you would expect. Um, and so when you're sitting on, you know, um, what effectively is, you know, a very steep pitch roof, uh, it gets to be a little bit painful over time. So that, that little bit of cushion provided by the mag is actually pretty welcome. Okay, Mikey, your next question. What do you train the astronauts to do in space? Yeah, so that's a great question. And the answer is the same tasks that they're, they're going to be expected to do on orbit. Um, so it's very similar to 
you know, uh, commercial diving in the sense of demolition, maybe not so much, although they do jettison things. Um, but you know, when, when you, when you're doing a commercial diving operation, odds are you're either doing a, a search and recovery or you're doing maintenance inspection or repair. Odds are it's going to fall into one of those categories. If it doesn't, maybe it is demo, but, um, but that's really what these guys are doing. So less search and recovery, but mainly it's inspection, maintenance, and repair. And so because, you know, everything um, does have a a lifespan, you know, it's it's often the case where they need to replace certain things or they may need to, um, you know, just replace certain things with form pit function replacements or they may need to replace it with an entirely upgraded unit. Um, I know when I was leaving the NBL, a big endeavor was to replace batteries. Um, so the, the ISS or the International Space Station has huge solar arrays um, that collect the energy from the sun using photovoltaics, and they use these batteries to store that power. And uh, essentially, they were going from nickel hydrogen to lithium oxide. Yeah, lithium oxide? Yeah, lithium hydroxide. I'm going to have to double check that, but essentially they were upgrading these batteries. And so what would happen is it would be a very orchestrated um, mission, in which case they would remove these old nickel hydrogen batteries. Oh, and replace them with them with lithium ion batteries. Um, so they're doing really, you know, kind of on a very high level, that type of stuff. Now on a very lower level, um, they're doing a lot of wrench turning, you know, it's a lot of, um, turning bolts, securing fasteners, you know, removing covers. Um, there's a lot of what they call MMOD, micrometeoroid orbital debris out there. So they need to have um, kind of covers for that. So it's, it's very simple tasks, um, which put together amount to, you know, an installation or repair or maintenance task. Is there like any welding or burning in space? No. <laughs> no, they would, they would frown on that. Because there's no oxygen, so you can't spark. Yeah, them, yeah, right? yeah. Might be a little bit difficult. Uh, they they do do cutting, um, but cutting in the sense of it's cold cutting. Uh, they just you know snips and things like that. But they do take. They obviously have to take a lot of precaution when working with any sharks. Um, diver gets a little a little stick or something. Not really a big deal, right? But uh, when you're in a pressurized suit, which is essentially your your life support in in a small spacecraft. You really got to worry about uh, about losing pressure. So no uh, no cutting, burning, just all pneumatic stuff. I'm sure. Do they have any splash zone in space? No, no splash zone. Yeah, that stuff is reserved for the NBL only. Um, but no, it's 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 quite interesting. You know, as a diver and really anybody that works with tools, I think especially divers. You know, we're always interested in how we can take a tool that we're familiar with, topside or that does a function topside. Now we got to put it in under our water environment, you know, in the hands of one of us monkeys and uh, have it function properly and be relatively easy to use. So essentially it's the same thing for, for these space tools. You know, they got to think about the same things. There's a lot of general noise going on during a spacewalk in the sense of, you know, you got to be worried, not worried, but, uh, but it's mentally fatiguing. And uh, so they try to make the tasks, they try to make the tools as simple as possible to operate. Obviously they need to be robust. Um, so it's, it's interesting to see some of the tools they come up with. Um, for instance, a typical drill, uh, you know, they, they have a battery powered drill that they utilize. Uh, it's called a pistol grip tool, but essentially it does the same thing. It's got a certain size drive and uh, 
they put on a socket and they can you know remove bolts with it um torque some bolts with it to a, to a certain amount and uh and that sort of thing so it's interesting to see the different tools they use too and i'm sure everything has got to be lightweight because there's always weight limits uh when you send Absolutely. stuff out of the space huh yeah you're paying for that uh you're paying per per ounce right probably per less than an ounce but that's they've, they've also got to be lightweight and robust so that's where material sciences really comes into play too um you don't have to worry about corrosion so much on orbit uh, but uh, but certainly you need to worry about how robust the material is and how heavy it is. I'm just kind of curious to see how you would train for something like that because yes, you're training underwater to simulate you know low gravity conditions, but there's no resistance when you're turning wrenches and turning tools in space. In water, there is resistance. Absolutely, that's and that's a that's a good thing too. All those you know sometimes again we we start to paint this picture between diving in the underwater environment and you know, doing some of that activity, you know, in a very, um, you know, an even more microgravity environment, you know, purchase isn't always available to us divers, right? Uh, sometimes we got to strap ourselves to something to be able to, to turn that thing, right? Or to torque it out or whatever be the case. Mm -hmm. Well, similarly, similarly for them, um, you know, if, if they can't get purchase, then they need to figure out a way to get purchase. And so luckily the geniuses there at NASA have invented some devices that allow them to do that. Um, Two come to mind initially. One of them, one of them is is would be really nice for divers in, in certain occasions, actually. But essentially, it's a it's a foot restraint, and so the International Space Station is littered with what they call worksite interface fixtures. And essentially, all it is is a is a mounted socket. So if you imagine, you know, uh, whatever size socket you got in your in your set right now, just welded to the outside of the space space station, um, and then you come in with a similar size. Um, fastener or drive or whatever to go ahead and plug into that. That's kind of what they got going on. So that's how the interface works between this device and the station. And the device itself is just essentially um, a couple of toe loops with some, some uh, heel clips. And um, these guys on the suit have boots that are made to interface with this foot plate. Um, and the device itself is called an articulating portable foot restraint. So obviously when you're looking at a, you know, a foot restraint, or anything to fasten the structure, you know, as divers, we don't need to be here for, we don't know exactly where we're going to need to be. Um, we need that flexibility to be able to change it, you know, with something that's intended to provide you purchase. Uh, again, just going into designing something like that, you're going to have to spend a little bit of time thinking about how am I going to make this, uh, you know, uh, able to be manipulated and, and used for the particular situation or angle or whatever. And so this, this particular restraint articulates in a bunch of different directions. So it's got a clocking, it's got a pitch, it's got a roll and it's got a yaw. And so between, you know, the combination of those four settings, you can really get to almost anywhere on the space station um, using these mounted, these whiffs of worksite interface fixtures. So that, that's what allows them to purchase. And they train for that in the pool. Um, you know, if, if uh, you know, like you said, if we're drilling something into the drywall up here um, and our, our, uh, drill torques out like we're not going to be rotating around the wall right we're going to be planted um but if they don't get themselves locked in or they aren't bracing that particular tool when it does work out and there's potential that 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 drill could slip out of their hands and kick around and maybe maybe um you know hit a visor um or if they're not into an apfr at all you know they're going to be spinning around so it's a lot of stuff that they got to think about and that translates into you know even just a typical wrench 
you know, or, or really any sort of any sort of tool that you're gonna you're gonna use for any length of time. Yeah, because you can't get any leverage or anything, you know. That that yeah. and that is like diving, you know. If you're operating like a really really strong a hydro blaster underwater, you know, you can't just you know be there. You've got to got to kind of tie yourself off a little yeah. bit, you know. So let's stop for a minute and talk about pressure junkies. Pressure junkies make some badass suits. Go to pressurejunkies.com. That's pressurejunkies with a Z. Dot com. What's so different about these wetsuits? Well, they're not your typical scuba suits off the shelf, that's for sure. These suits, for one, are built for the working diver. Trevor Heinz, the brains behind Pressure Junkies, is an active working diver for the past 20 years. So he knows what we want. And what we want is to not struggle into a wet-ass suit at oh dark 30 in the morning. So what did he do? Well, he put zippers on the cuffs and the ankles and most of his suits are front entry. What else could you want? Well, I'll tell you what you want. You want Kevlar on the elbows and the knees and pockets on the pant legs to store all those bolts and store all those little nuts that you're trying to uh, try to wiggle on. They're comfortable. They offer maximum protection, thermal protection, and style. And who doesn't want to look good while they're getting dirty? Pressure Junkies wetsuits are commercial diving suits for the working diver, and they're not going to break your bank. Suits are affordable, they last long, and they're just like us. They work hard. So go to PressureJunkies.com. That's PressureJunkies.com. All right. Back to the show. That's pretty cool, man. Um, Didn't think about that, you know, fully until now that, yeah, you, you do have to get, you know, all crazy and different, you know, angles and different, just, just like diving, you know? Yeah. Um, have you ever seen anyone freak out? Yeah. I mean, we've all seen somebody freak out, right. Or we've heard it over comms. Um, for the most part, you know, you don't see that at NASA. Folks are very good at keeping their composure. Um, for, you know, a lot of the similar reasons as they, they were, wouldn't be offshore. You know, they, they, uh, they want to make sure that they're, their career isn't in jeopardy. You know, if you see someone freak out, odds are you're not going to want to put them back into that situation again. And part of being an astronaut and a diver um, is being uncomfortable when you're uncomfortable. Uh, so, you know, they, NASA does a very good job at vetting out these folks uh, that they're bringing in as astronaut candidates. And similarly, the, the partners at uh, the Nature Boyce Lab do a great job of bringing in divers. And, and I've worked with, you know, academics, maybe SEALs, ex-commercial divers, deep sea guys, the whole, the whole gamut. And the common theme is these, these guys, wherever their background is from, they carry themselves like utter professionals and they're very comfortable being uncomfortable. And so at the neutral points lab, I don't think I've ever seen anybody, you know, using air quotes here, but freak out. Um, you know, the, the training at that point for those people they're bringing in is so extensive that, uh, you know, as a, as a diver, you lose primary air or gas, you know, you go to your bailout, it's, it's becomes an issue of not, you don't even think about it. It's just instinctual. And, um, you know, you, you very rarely get into those times where you need to check yourself. Um, so it, it's, it was a pleasure to be able to not have to witness that type of thing or be worried about that type of thing. Um, so, so they're pretty yeah. vetted to the point to where like, you know, they're comfortable not breathing their own air, you know, um, yeah. or breathing supplied air, excuse me. And, uh, Yes, that that I'm sure you got to go through a ton of psychological evaluations just to get a job like that, you know. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's kind of funny because I had a I had applied for a job at a hydro weld, 
And uh, they sent me a questionnaire. It's like a hundred page questionnaire. It was a psych evaluation. I'm like, what the hell is this? <laughs> I found out later that it was like an, uh, uh, it was a Scientology application. It was kind of funny, you know, but no way. Like complete. Yeah. It was like a complete psych evaluation. I, I, I think I still have it. If you're curious, I'll shoot it over to you. You'll get a kick out of it. But, Please do. but I'm sure, like I said, they're, they're vetted. And uh, as far as like freaking out, um, let, let's rephrase that. Let's say, have you ever had to pull an astronaut out, derig them and everything like that? You know, cause I'm sure it takes so, a lot of time to get them in. Right. It does. It does. It's a whole process. Um, you know, it's a lot harder than, than donning a guy or assisting a guy, you know, donning a hat and, and latching into an umbilical and getting him down in the water and doing a preemptive comp check and monitoring a gas rack. You know, there's a lot more that goes into it. Um, and I say that tenderly because the system that they've got there is, is very, it's very fancy gas rack. Um, you know, they've got that suit is essentially a free flow, free flow, um, diving suit. And so, you know, uh, gas, 46% uh, nitrox is pumped down to these guys at a, at a flow rate of 6 ACFM. Um, and so you have this kind of uh, system built around that and also, you know, a standardized delta pressure of 4 PSI, uh, 4 PSID. Um, and you have this entire system designed to go ahead and support those two metrics primarily. And obviously you get a lot of feedback um, to, to monitor those things and a lot of redundancies built in and resiliency. But, uh, but it's a little bit more involved, right? Just the nature of it. So just uh, getting somebody in, you know, to the suit, making sure that you have good flow, good pressure, you know, that's difficult. Um, and it's something that uh, needs monitoring throughout the entire day, every minute, every second of the day. Uh, it needs eyes on it to verify. So, uh, so it is difficult to get them out. Now we do train for that. Um, you know, and that's kind of how us divers get the opportunity to get in the suit. Um, how I got the opportunity four times, I'm very lucky. But uh, we do train, have entire days where we, we put a diver in, a lot less valuable than an astronaut, as you can imagine. And uh, we do scenarios where, say, we just, we're just we working at a site and we get told, hey, pass out. And uh, they leave it to the divers to go ahead and realize, okay, you know, Mitch, extravehicular mm-hmm. two, uh, subject two isn't, isn't responding. Let's go check him out, try to knock on his visor, see if we can get a response out of him. No, okay, then we need to we need to go up, but you know we're under pressure, so we have to go up, you know, no faster than thirty feet a minute, um, and slowly get them to the donning stand because these things are massive. You know, the suits on land weigh about three hundred pounds, um, so we got to use a donning stand just to put them in and take them out. So it's a it's an orchestration, and it's something that they practice there consistently, and that's how we have such confidence in the divers. Um, and also in the astronauts themselves, you know, they, they're familiar with the process as well. Nice. So do you guys also have a chamber there on site too? Yes. So we have a multi-log hyperbaric chamber and we also have a hypobaric chamber. Um, we have a, well, we have a flight chamber, an altitude chamber as well. Um, so okay. both, both of those are on site. Obviously the hyperbaric is there really just in, in the event of any, any sort of uh, diver related incident, um, whether it's to a subject or to a diver. Uh, and they have a ramp that goes straight down to it. So they practice the full thing um, during those days that I was just talking about. Um, the last scenario will usually involve getting somebody that's completely dark, completely unconscious, out of the EMU. So that includes, you know, deep press, getting them, getting the suit doffed, getting them onto a gurney, getting them into the hyperbaric chamber and pressing. And to how deep it depends, um, sometimes they'll, they'll run a table or they'll start to run a table. 
um, just to get uh, the medical staff on site, kind of get them some practice too. But it, it really is a, uh, a group scenario um, utilizing, yeah, that hyperbaric chamber and, and the experience of medical staff there as well. So, so that, that a hypo chamber, um, you've been in that too? Yeah, I got the opportunity of, of going in there too. Um, so that the, uh, reason for that is that the, the EMU or the spacesuit, um, you know, in the pool, we, we plummet, we, we plumb down air, right? We plumb down, well, it's actually gas, 46% nitrous. Um, the real deal, uh, when they're outside station, they're breathing hundred percent oxygen. So it complicates things a little bit. Now there's, there's, there's. We do have essentially an onboard computer system mounted to your chest, which is called the display and control module on the spacesuit. But, uh, but really, and that'll give you some feedback um, and warning, caution and warnings. But, uh, but you have to be able to recognize low O2 when you're in the suit. And so similarly, you know, when these guys fly and they do do a lot of test flights in, in standard aircraft, um, maybe T-38s. T38. So they get a lot of flight time. They have you know, a required amount of flight time that they need to get. And so it's important for them to recognize the symptoms of hypoxia. And essentially that's what the altitude chamber does. Um, so they, they have guys um, on, on bids and uh, they'll you know, bring them up to you know, whatever the altitude is, you know, maybe 20,000 more feet, have them come off the supplied oxygen and do some problems. And so that's what they did to us. You know, here we're doing problems. And all of a sudden, you know, things start being like, it's like you kind of had a few more teams. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of like being narked, um, you know, feeling that hypoxia, you know, uh, in a similar, similar way, but, uh, you know, in a little bit more dire way, because especially if you're in an aircraft, although being underwater, you know, it's, uh, you, you have the hat on and you're not going to be popping that off anytime soon. So at least they're going to be pumping you down air. But, uh, but in the case of hypoxia, um, you know, odds are you're in an aircraft. So if you lose oxygen, um, you really need to descend. You need to, you know, lower your altitude, um, or you need to figure out a way to re reinitiate that oxygen flow. And so that's what this is meant to, to have you do is to get a feel for what your body's personal symptoms are for losing that oxygenated blood flow, um, or hypoxia. And, uh, for everybody, it's going to be different. Um, you know, for, for a lot of the guys, it's uh, maybe nausea or, or just kind of a general feeling of, you know, fatigue or, uh, you know, I don't know, serenity. Uh, for me, I felt some tingling in my extremities, my fingers particularly. Mm-hmm. And uh, I also felt, you know, like everything was velvet. I just felt, uh, felt good. Um, and that's why it's like kind, of, kind of a little bit of the narcosis-like symptoms for me. But it gets to be a competition when you're at that altitude um, where you need to be on bibs getting supplied O2, uh, you know, you kind of want to outlast the other person across from you who's also doing the, the math equations and the crossword puzzles. And so ultimately, you know, I had to, one of the medical texts that's writing, you know, flying with you, uh, I did air quotes there, um, had to actually force the bid, force the bid back on and say, you know, no, take it, take it. So at that point, I just, I just tucked tail and took it. But, uh, but it was quite a, quite a cool experience to be able to to tell what the, you know, what it feels like. That's pretty cool, man. Um, so you've been higher than you've ever gone diving, I guess. Yeah. Technically. <laughs> pretty far, right? Yeah. That's pretty neat. So your, your whole time there um, definitely was a magical experience to say the least. Right. Very cool. uh, so you were going to school as well though, right? 
at the same time. Yeah. So, you know, it's, you kind of, uh, when you're in that environment, you're, you're talking to these astronauts, anybody who's listening can pull up the resume of, of one of these guys or gals and, and just be, you know, downright impressed. You know, I don't care who you are. You watch one of these guys talk about themselves, um, or you read their bio and you just wonder how do they have enough time in a day to accomplish all this? I mean, you're talking Navy SEAL MD. Like, how do you have enough, where do you come from? You know? And so you get inspired and, 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 you know, the astronauts, you know, are just kind of the tip of the iceberg, you know, as they say, it takes the village to make these operations happen both on the ground and in orbit. And those folks are extremely smart. You know, those folks are extremely smart and, um, by and large, you know, very friendly, just good people, uh, working there. Um, so you get inspired, you know, and I, and I felt like, uh, as a diver, and I'm sure a lot of divers out there have felt this, you know, they sometimes face the stigma of like, oh, you're just some dumb diver monkey on a chain. You know, you don't know what you're talking about. You can't call that a crack. That's a crack like indication. You're not an engineer, you know? Um, and so, you know, I kind of got a little bit, uh, a little fed up with that. And I was like, you know what, uh, you know, I could, I could go back to school and, and have a little bit more clout here. Um, as far as, you know, what I observe, maybe from an engineering standpoint or a process flow standpoint. And, um, that's what I did. So I ended up going to school for initially mathematical science and, um, went to school at night. So I'd work my 40 hours during the week and then go to, go to school after work, sometimes till 10 PM and uh, get up in the morning and, and go to work and do it all over again. And just kind of hit the grind. And again, you know, I just haven't ever had a whole hell of a lot of patience and I've, I've always kind of been wanting to keep my nose to the grindstone. If it's not there, you know, I don't know where it is. I'm like, what am I doing? And, um, so I ended up getting my bachelor's degree in essentially mathematics. And then, uh, you know, I thought, okay, that was cool. Now let's go for masters. Let's ride this wave. And so, uh, so same thing. So I, you know, working, get off work, uh, homework, go to school at night. And, uh, you know, and in that time I actually transitioned from being a diver to a, a suit and tools engineer, um, still there at the NBL, but supporting in, in a more of an engineering capacity. And so that kind of meshed well with the master's degree that I was pursuing for systems engineering. And, uh, so it all kind of, you know, it kind of just happened, happened, uh, along that way. But, uh, you know, we were talking about this earlier, you know, people, people can go different routes with the commercial diving thing, but, you know, if you're willing to pay the bill and really it's an initial investment, um, anybody can go to school, you know, anybody can sit through school and, and do it and find parallels and ask questions. You know, I think, you know, a lot of the times in my experience, you get an instructor or professor that you look up to and you put on a pedestal because they know how to do abstract algebra, but there may be in a full grown adult sitting in their class that knows how to build a house. It's a developer. And you can't really equate the two. Um, sometimes I feel like that developer who's sitting in the class hesitates to raise his hand because he's going to look stupid. But when it comes to, you know, maybe plumbing a house or, or wiring up a house, you know, that instructor doesn't know what they're doing. And, and so it's this, uh, again, it, it's kind of something that you notice, but you're never too old to go back there. Everybody brings something to the table. And, you know, as a diver, it was a pleasure to be able to go back and to come back to the pool, come back to the water with a little bit more clout, you know, and what you have to say. Um, because unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, that piece of paper, that degree is uh, accounting for more and more um, these days. Right. And, and uh, 
I know there there was a diver that I had worked with. Uh, he works as an engineer at a Sea Engineering. It's a it's a company in Central California. Right. Um, I've worked for them for quite you know quite a bit in my past, and uh, so they have a engineer there. His name's Paul Roberts, and uh, he was an offshore diver, you know, wrench turner and all that. And during the slow seasons, he would go to school and just knock out a little bit of classes here and there. You know, he'd take a math class, you know, one one semester, take a couple classes here and eventually he was able to become a full-fledged project engineer and now he's i, th- I think he's like the vice president over there too or, you know something crazy but that's you awesome you just have to have that focus you know and you definitely had that focus and were able to accomplish that you know and uh yeah well i wanted to talk to you a little bit about the uh i think, think we touched on it the uh the gas supply and all that the sdc yeah yeah um so the uh the submersible diving chamber so the, the suit, so the suit. Um, you're talking specifically about the suit at the NBL? Yeah, yeah. So, so the the uh, the gas that gets supplied to them is 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 that require like any kind of a mix in like on the fly, like you would a uh, you know Satec type of thing? It's so it's uh, there's a lot of parallels, right? There's a lot of parallels between you know standard SAT system and what they got there at the NBL with the environmental control system. Um, you know, it's kind of uh, you got a, a small chamber at the end of that with the person in it, as opposed to, you know, maybe a, 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 a uh, you know, standard living chamber and, and your SDC and, and your diver ultimately. But uh, yeah, it's similar. Um, so they do, they do mix or blend um, the gas at the NBL. So they get liquid oxygen coming in. They, they, they do have mixing um, capability there. So they do plumb 46% nitrox down to the diver. Uh, or, or to the subject rather. Uh, that's due to, you know, the BCS um, possibility after six hours underwater at 40 feet, they did the math and they figured out, okay, um, partial pressure wise, 46% O2 is, is a good mix. Um, so it's a, it's a really cool system that they have there in the sense of, like I said prior, they're trying to maintain six actual cubic feet per minute flow to, to the subject, to the EMU. And also uh, four psi delta um, inside of that suit, and so it's it's interesting how they have everything lined up. And of course, because safety is a top priority, um, they have redundancy, uh, and 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 instead of having redundancy, they have they have the resiliency resiliency to absorb a mishap or, or some sort of an error. So you know, while the subject is going up and down in the water column. Um, you know, as, as they're going down, uh, the rule, you know, you're, you're going to have, uh, things get denser, um, you know, P1, D1. So, uh, you're having a little bit of an issue there. So but they have what's called an autom- automated, um, flow control valve, motorized flow control valve. And essentially, um, because of some controllers they have there that can, can read the data come off the suit. When the suit starts to go lower in the water column, um, that flow valve opens up your SCFM goes up, your standard cubic feet goes up, and that ACFM stays stable at six. And so uh, on the contrary, as they ascend, um, you know, that flow, that uh, motorized flow control valve closes down a bit uh, to maintain that six ACFM. So it's kind of a cool system they have there. Um, and, uh, you know, you may also ask yourselves, you know, as, as divers, obviously, uh, you know, when we're talking sad or something, something deep, you know, we're worried about thermal conditions, right? And thermal cycles, you know, on orbit are extreme. So that's another thing that they needed to think about 
And, you know, when you're in the pool at 86 degrees working, uh, you can imagine how that could get hot too in any sort of a pressurized vessel. You know, your body heat's going to affect that. Um, and, and eventually you're going to be sweating uh, normally. So what the folks at NASA did is they invented this thing called an LCVG, a Lima Charlie Victor, Victor, <laughs> Victor Golf, Lima Charlie Victor Golf, a liquid cooling and ventilation garment. And so what this is, is essentially it's a, it's a suit that they wear under the, the uh, spacesuit that we all picture when we think of spacesuit. And uh, it's, it's woven with tubing, like you'd find at any, any hardware store, it's flexible tubing. And I think it's like a 32nd inch ID tubing. But essentially what they do is they run um, a certain degree temperature water, say it's 34 degrees. They run a 34 degree temperature water to this suit and almost like your circulatory system, the suit um, back front down to your legs, to your extremities. And uh, depending on how uh, warm you are um, or cold you are, they can increase the flow rate of that water. So they can, um, they can increase the, the GPH or the gallons per hour um, to go ahead and, and accommodate your needs. So say if you're running a little bit hot, they're going to pump you down that water faster and it's going to circulate faster, you know, just kind of like a, a radiator. You got some heat exchange going on. And so um, that's kind of how they accomplish the, the thermal conditions problem. And so they do, they do uh, utilize that there at the NBL too. Uh, they have chillers and water pump. So they make sure to monitor that as well. And the subject can call that out um, to, to the ECS operator if they would like a change, depending on you know, how they're doing temperature wise. But, uh, but again, on the real day, you know, that, that whole, that whole system um, is housed within their, their EMU, you know, that they're going to be in um, doing their spacewalk on orbit so they can control that flow um, from a dial on their display and control module on the chest. That's pretty neat. So that's kind of why these suits have to be a little bit bulky because there's a lot of stuff going on inside there, right? I always wondered why the hell are the suits so big? Yeah, yeah there's a lot of stuff going on. It is really a, a marvel of human engineering. Um, and... Uh, you know, it's essentially it's, it's just a small spacecraft, a personal spacecraft. Yeah. So when when you think of these spacesuits, like the first thing that I think about related to underwater is those uh, the articulated suits. You know, is it kind of yeah. similar to that? I'm sure. Yeah, it's similar, very similar. You know, mm -hmm. a one atmosphere suit, right? Um, now, when in the in the pool, they, uh, you know, there's we're still subject to gravity, um, so they do mm -hmm. have to experience a bit of that. Um, it's not a, uh, you know, a hard, hard suit, so to speak, um, like the gym or, or some of those other, uh, those other suits. Mm -hmm. I forget who, who's the primary manufacturer of those now ocean systems or uh, forget, but, um, yeah, it's very similar to that. You know, it's kind of, whereas that's kind of a, a personal submersible, this is a personal spacecraft. And so sim similarly, you have onboard systems and they have to think about, you know, your life support, your comfort level. How do they transmit health and status, comms, all that other stuff? Um, yeah, so it's, it's similar, very similar. Have you ever had the opportunity to get in or around one of those? No, no, but my dive instructor, he, uh, he did. He was able to get in there, and I definitely want to try to find, uh, find somebody to talk about it. I've been trying to get him on the show. That would be cool. You know, he's a little shy. Yeah, he's a... Yeah, he's a good dude. I want to get him on. So maybe if I put him on blast, uh, David Dodd, <laughs> you know, that was the guy that trained me. 
he he showed me a picture of himself in one of those uh those suits, you know, those atmospheric gym suits. You know, those those are pretty cool looking. Yeah, come on, Dave. Hopefully, he can come on the show and tell us about it. He's an army diver. I think an army master diver. Or something. Nice. So pretty cool dude. But uh, yeah. So after after you got your master's degree, that afforded you to take another job, right? I, I mean, you got tapped to go somewhere else. Is is that right? Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, backtracking a little bit, you know, going to school uh, night for for systems engineering, a master of science, um, while working full time as an engineer at NASA. Um, you know, I, I kind of kind of was was riding the line. You know, I was doing uh, doing doing the stuff by day and uh, doing the work by day and the education by night. And ultimately, at the end of it, um, kind of through, by happenstance, I ended up seeing a, an offer for uh, risk analyst. And um, this particular position was supporting the DOD uh, space program or the Space Force, as it's now known. And so mm-hmm. I kind of was thinking, you know, hey, that would be interesting. Um, another feather in my cap to see, you know, no longer uh, the civil space sector, but um, we know the, the, the defense space sector, the, the uh, you know, DOD. Took a, took a position there, ended up uh, moving away from the NBL to those guys. Uh, really, really good people there. And uh, ended up moving to Colorado Springs uh, to support uh, this particular contract uh, for the Space Force, uh, and in particular the launch and test range systems. So, anybody that ever witnessed a launch has most likely witnessed that either um, the Eastern Range in Florida at the Cape, uh, or Western Range at Vandenberg Air Force Base out here. Uh, and so, uh, it was neat to be able to jump in there. And now we're taking, you know, initially. A system at, the, at NASA uh, that, depending on where you define the boundary to be, you know, if you're looking at a spacesuit, it's a relatively compact system. If you were to draw a boundary on it, you know, and just say, okay, um, just ex- just ex- this, even though I know it's it's complicated, but uh, you know, the volume of that system and it's it's quite insignificant as compared to a launch range. And so I found that interesting as well. There's a, a lot more to learn. Um, all kinds of various subsystems, radar, all these things that uh, that allow the capability for a launch operation, and so I kind of fell into that niche, and uh, that kind of led into another position on the same contract, supporting in a similar capacity um, out here at the Western Range in in Bandon, in, uh, in Lompoc, California, supporting Bandon or the Western Range. Nice man, and to think this all started with uh, you going to to Santa Barbara Dive School, yep. right? Is isn't that crazy? Yeah, full circle so too, cool. location wise. Kind of kind of a trip. Right. So Are you happy to be back. This kind of goes back to what we're talking about. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting. Um, you know, it's beautiful. My family's here and that's all I'm gonna say about that. <laughs> right. So I I mean that's that's amazing, you know. Um what advice do you have for like say a diver, you, you know, that's a young diver or old diver, you know. Is, is it too late to go back to school if that's something that they want to do? Like, what's the process Absolutely. to get back at it? I mean, it is a process, right? It is a process. But, uh, but it's never too late to go to school. And I know that sounds really cliche. Um, but like I said earlier, you know, if you want to put in the time and you want to put in the dime, then it's, it's your call. Um, if you want to use one of those as an excuse... That's all you. I've never really fancied the excuses thing, um, you know. But unfortunately, the way the world is, more and more, that paper is becoming, you know, important. That piece of paper that is your degree. Uh, so I think, 
it's it's hard for a lot of people because they don't know which path to take and they think they're looking at a fork um and you know speaking from experience you know you can do one thing and pursue an education concurrently uh it's been done it'll continue to get done and people that are in worse positions than you are doing it day to day every day um so really there's there's not a whole lot of excuse now people dabble in uncertainty i get it but um at the same time if it's something that interests you you want to commit and uh in order to you know secure that commitment you need to figure out why what's your why for me uh, i enjoy turning wrenches just as much as the next guy working with cool stuff i mean it was great uh, ultimately i got to a point in my career where i wanted to be more of a shot caller and i figured out in order to do that the easiest way um, would be with the degree. Uh, so that's why I decided to go back and pursue specifically the master's degree. Um, you know, that, uh, that was a way of getting me there. And then it wasn't a frivolous pursuit. It was, I know what I want to do, or I know I've characterized what I want to do, may not know exactly what I want to do, but, um, you know, I pursued it. A lot of people, like I said, they get stuck in this place of uncertainty. Um, they never get a chance to realize that indecision is by and large, most of the time, the worst decision. It's much better to aggressively pursue a plan today than it is to haphazardly pursue one three days from now. Um, and, and unfortunately that's just kind of the case. Uh, and, and, you know, going through dive school and stuff, every single educational program, like you said earlier, Armando, you're always learning, you know, the leaders are learners. That's just how it is. Um, you lead by example, you learn and, uh, you read, you know, and you get down and you get your stuff done. Um, and yeah, it may be hard, but, uh, you kind of suck it up, keep your nose to the grindstone, embrace the suck. And you know, what are divers are comfortable with being uncomfortable. So if you're not making yourself uncomfortable, then, you know, for me, I don't feel, I don't necessarily feel good. So that's a roundabout way of saying, if you want to do it, do it. Um, don't blame anybody but yourself. There are ways to do it. Um, but I will underscore the fact that there are certain things that you just can't teach. There are certain things that you're not going to get out of an education um, at a higher learning uh, institution. You know, those things are things that you could in, increase and, and improve upon day to day. Or maybe you're lucky and you're like, like uh, you were saying earlier, you know, you and I, we were, we were both blessed to have you know, this affinity for water and, and we're kind of like watermen. That's, it's kind of, you know, depending on how you want to look at it, kind of what we're born to do or be around or be involved with it's inside of you. We're blessed. Other things like mechanical aptitude, you know, maybe you didn't grow up on a farm, but Hey, you can certainly go and go to your library and rent books on statics and mechanics and how to, you know, which fasteners are which, and you could do stuff like that. You could do it in a garage or in a buddy's garage. Um, you know, other things like preparation, you know, divers, typically they carry three knives, right? One to lose, one to use, and one to dull. Um, that mentality is something that you don't get in an institution. You use that in an institution of higher education. That will trickle out and become a part of every single pursuit in your life, being prepared. You know, I learned that early on as a Boy Scout, the Scout motto. Um, you always be prepared. Sometimes people are going to mock you. And sometimes you can take it to a next level that may not be appropriate, but you know, sometimes it's like rather be safe than sorry. 
right? It's, I'd rather have the tool when I'm down there instead of some tender try to throw it down on the down line and putting the shackle the wrong way and having you know and letting it ride on the pin and uh, now now I don't have a wrench in it. So that type of thing. Other thing is global awareness. I mean, that's one of the things that, and I'm all kind of on my pedal still here, but uh, but nowadays people, it's like where did the situational awareness go? You know how um, you ask yourself when you see stuff on the news, how did people hesitate to act to help others? Um, and half of it's because you didn't have any situational awareness. As divers, we have to be globally aware. Or has to be on a swivel. And yep. that's just, again, something else that's going to permeate into every part of your life. And that's going to reinforce every pursuit you do, including education. Um, so some of these things, you know, and then you get communication. I mean, you know, you'll notice that the best divers are good at communicating or they're not good at communicating or they're good at knowing when to communicate. Sometimes being really good at communication is knowing when to communicate and when to not. Um, so those are kind of like soft skills that we can all improve upon in a day-to-day basis that we don't have to go pay the man thousands of dollars for that are going to show us a return um, if they haven't already. So, you know, there's, there's the standardized education um, and then there's the, the soft skills education, which is just as important. Um, you know, so yeah, it's just, uh, you know, it's one of those things where it is all up to you. There is nobody to blame but yourself. And uh, if you want to do it, you can do it. Yeah, um, and, and and your skills as a diver, you know, we just named a bunch of them. That's going to help you also in education. You know, yeah. you're going to have a leg up, you know, from the average student because you've got real world experience, you know, especially if you're a little bit older. But um, the other thing I wanted to touch on too, Mitch, with you was that uh, you've got some divers that think that that's all there is is just construction and, you know, offshore and things like that, you know, um, you know, if you wanted to like within the realm of diving, there's so many different things that you can do. Uh, like you said, you can do construction, you know, you can be a, a harbor diver. Maybe you don't dive free, that frequently, but, uh, maybe you're, you know, maintaining or something like that in the harbor. Um, you can get into scientific, you can get into academia. Um, I worked for a person that went to dive school who had an engineering degree that went on to be a partner at an engineering firm doing structural condition assessment. Um, you can do the, you know, NASA, the NBL, there's NEMO. NEMO is a program out in Florida in which it's a similar analog, um, for, for, uh, for space missions, uh, essentially, essentially just a, a living chamber on the, on the bottom of the 60 feet down. There's so many different things that you can do. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's good to be ready to do maybe the most physically demanding of those, which is the construction, um, and to get some wherewithal with respect to that particular arena, but that's just going to prepare you better for any way that you choose to go. Awesome, man. Couldn't have said it better myself. So Mitch, one last quick question. Um, it's, it's kind of a hypothetical, but you're on the space force. So maybe you can answer an asteroid is heading towards earth. Would they potentially tap commercial divers to go drill and drop a nuke into it to save us all? Pretty sure they would first tap Michael Bay to go ahead and orchestrate the entire thing, and then get some get some film crew staff uh, in. But uh, but certainly, you know, certainly, I could see that. That's too funny. Yeah. So uh, no, I I mean, more serious, you know, question was uh, would be, do you ever see you know you know 
NASA tapping commercial divers to try to try to go work in space at some point, or do they just train engineers? I absolutely do. Um, the reason for that is we're getting to an area, we're getting to a time in our history right now where space is becoming more and more of a familiar domain. Um, and that may seem, you know, um, like a, a major statement to make, but relative to, you know, where we started off with the moon landing in 69, we've come so far. You know, now we have commercial space. Um, and so we're making huge leaps in technology and innovation that are going to facilitate a lot more space-based endeavors in the future. And there are going to be certain people that are going to be better to facilitate those endeavors than others. Um, if you go back and you want to stroll down memory lane, you know, pop in, uh, pop in the movie, the right stuff. It's, it's really an interesting movie, particular scene where they're going over there in a conference room. They're going over who should we send to space? Should we send big wave surfers? You know, because they in this flow state, um, you know, should we send engineers, pilots, uh, you know, they're having this like border discussion. That discussion is coming about again, um, because there's going to be a, a more a wider variety of people that are going to need to support this this future in space um, in a variety of different capacities. So it's an exciting time, and I'm a big proponent of diving, as you can tell already, um, all you guys and girls out there in Armando. You know, so you know we bring to the table something special. Um, we have a lot of similarities to those folks that they currently decide to end up as far as you know that are involved in in the NASA space flight program. And um, yeah, I think that a lot of these guys could handle that environment because they're, they're used to and familiar with environments that are not conducive to life <laughs> and they're not cooperative most of the time. Yeah. And, and we've said it before, you know, we're used to diving on life support, you know, as soon as you dip your head below the surface, you're on life support, you know, so real, real similar. And, uh, it would be awesome to see some of my younger friends that are coming through dive school and stuff that they're going to be tapped to go do like a moon base or something like that in the not too distant future. Yeah. And you know, I got to, I got to plug in this bit first is, you know, my, one of my big goals is to go figure out a way to meld the different community communities, the aerospace engineering community and the diving community and the potential for those two communities coming together. Um, you know, even if it's just our training arena, you know, the, the, the opportunities are, are quite numerous and I don't feel that, like they're being exhausted at this point. And I'm excited to see where that goes. Personally, that's one of the things I look forward to in trying to figure out how can we know these, what can we get out of that and how can that benefit us in the future of, of space and space exploration? That's super exciting. And I'm sure that's the reason why you got into this, you know, trade and, and advanced your dive career to be able to just stay on that, you know, the ground floor and the cutting edge of, uh, of everything, you know, hopefully we'll get to see you in space at some point. That'd be awesome. Wouldn't it? I, I applied back in March, but, uh, but yeah, we, we, we shall see. It's a lot of, I a lot of very, very, um, smart individuals, much smarter than, than, uh, than myself or, are doing that. Uh, and just good quality people. So, we shall see. Well, we're definitely all, all pulling for you, Mitch, and we'll be your biggest fans when you do make it, man. Yeah, I appreciate so, uh, it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I want to thank you for coming on the show. This was an amazing episode, and uh, 
but I really hope we, we uh, help some of those divers out there that, you know, that might be stuck in a rut or something and, and, you know, or, or just not cutting into the construction field. They've got other options and other avenues. It starts with dive school and uh, you take it, take life, you know, and, and do what you want with it. Absolutely. And for those interested or, or, or want, um, you know, feel free to reach out. Um, like you said, there is that underwater article. My email is in there. Um, you know, anything, uh, I just love hearing from other people, you know, if nothing else, just hearing your story would be great. And Armando, I just can't underscore enough how appreciative I am, um, of you for allowing me on the show with all of these greats that have come before me on this podcast. And I, it's truly humbling. And, um, I still don't feel like I belong here, but uh, I really appreciate it. I appreciate what you're doing for the diving community. It's great. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Mitch. That's great, man. Um, Thanks again. And I uh, just want to remind you guys, we got, we got some big things in store, you know, uh, other, other guests like Mitch, you know, and uh, other inspiring stories to kind of, kind of help us out and uh, help us advance as a community. You know, that's what we're trying to do here at the bottom dollars dive shack. All right, Mitch, have a good one. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the bottom dollars dive shack. Make sure you like, and follow on our social media pages on Instagram and Facebook Please share this podcast with your friends or anyone interested in commercial diving. The only way that uh, we can make this successful is if we do get a lot of people that are listening. We get more listeners, we get more sponsors, and that means more free stuff for you guys. That's right. We are hooking up all of our diver brothers and sisters in the trade. And uh, if you keep sharing and liking, we're able to do that a lot more. Our Instagram is at BottomDwellersDS. Our Facebook is BottomDwellersDiveShack. And you can always like and follow me at LB Diver on both. The Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack is available on all podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Anchor. We also have it streaming on our website at thebottomdwellers.com. So keep listening. Keep it safe. Keep it salty. This is LB Diver out.